Now, I normally don't do such cheesy things, but I really like that video, um, and we are going to talk a lot about gratitude today, uh, because that is actually at the heart of generosity. Now, we are in what amounts to our final sermon in a four-part series on generosity, and it really was just a survey of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is really about the grace of giving. And just by way of reminder, um, our first sermon examined where generosity actually begins. And what I try to remind us all was that we simply give because Jesus gave. Um, our second sermon examined when we actually have enough to give, teaching us that God expects us to give out of what we have right now, and not to wait for what we actually don't have yet. Then last week we talked about how we are to give, our attitude in giving, that it should be faithful and, and even cheerful, knowing that we will reap what we sow. And so this week, uh, as our final sermon, I want to examine why we give it all. Uh, namely, uh, the fundamental goal of our generosity is actually not primarily to bring relief to men or women or children or whomever, but actually primarily to produce glory-filled gratitude to God. That's the goal. Now, there exists um, a very deep connection, I believe, between generosity and our gratitude. Now, generosity is uh, strangely both the product of gratitude, it's birthed out of gratitude, uh, but it actually is also a producer of gratitude in the person who's receiving it. So those who are giving it, hopefully, generosity is birthed out of this attitude of gratitude, for lack of a better phrase, and it's actually producing gratitude in the one who is receiving it. There's a deep connection between generosity and gratitude. And I found it interesting that the word gratitude is derived from the Latin word gratia, right, which means grace. That grace is embedded in the word gratitude. And grace is that unearned voluntary favor. Now, gratitude, when we just think about it quite plainly, it is a thankful appreciation that um, an individual uh, receives or experiences because of what they've received, right? Whether it be an intangible thing that they're thankful for or an intangible thing that can't be touched that they're thankful for. But with gratitude, someone who's grateful, they basically are acknowledging the undeserved goodness in their lives. They're saying, this is grace, this is goodness, this is undeserved, I didn't earn it. And they're thankful. That's the heart of gratitude. And most Grateful people usually recognize that the source of goodness lies at least partially outside of themselves. And what happens as a result is gratitude typically, true gratitude, genuine gratitude helps people connect with something larger than themselves as individuals. It may be another person, it may be a higher power, there's lots of things that people might express gratitude toward, but it does help them to look outside themselves. The ungrateful person that doesn't demonstrate or feel gratitude either fails to recognize the actual goodness that exists in their life, like we saw in this video, 
How many things do we just take for granted that we have? Or they believe that all the goodness they have in their life is deserved or earned. And so they don't look to anyone else to show gratitude. Now, you may or may not know that the Bible has a lot to say about gratitude and God. In Romans chapter 1, which the book of Romans is is like a a very in-depth book of theology within the New Testament, and it begins with really the the front end of of the 16 chapters. The first chapter begins with a description in many ways of the depravity of man. How broken man is, how fallen man has become. And in one of the descriptions in chapter 1, verse 21, uh, this is what it says. In describing all these sinful behaviors, it says, although these people knew God, speaking about just mankind, humanity in general, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They didn't thank God. It seems that divine ingratitude is at the heart of man's sin problem. There are actually other passages in Scripture. There are these passages that explicitly state God's will. And there's a handful of them where it basically says God's will is this. We always talk about God's will, but there's a handful that explicitly just state it. There are passages in the New Testament, the Old says, God's will is your sanctification. God's will is your obedience. God's will is to do good works. God's will is to be filled with the Spirit. And then there's an interesting one in Thessalonians, which you may be familiar with. Reminding us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Among other things, God wills for us to give thanks at all times. Reminding us that our gratitude and the contentment that we're supposed to experience is not to be directly related to our circumstances. It says at all times, not when circumstances are good. And the same should go for our generosity. If your gratitude is connected to your generosity, then our generosity isn't dependent necessarily on circumstances primarily. Now, our text this morning, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 to 15, has three basic things to show us. First, as I think this video in a clever way showed us, is that we have a lot to be thankful for. And if you actually take a a moment and just survey the things that we take for granted, you would be grateful. I think we take most of God's graces for granted because either we A, don't see them, or B, we believe that we have earned them or accomplished them ourselves. These graces were designed to do more than just provide for us They were even designed to do more than produce that attitude of gratitude. That's not even the end goal. These graces were given to us so that we might be able to give them to others. Second, we learn that our gratitude actually gives birth to generosity, and our generosity gives birth to more gratitude. 
We'll see how that works with the Corinthians. And then finally, Paul will teach us that generosity is never, ever, 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 ever a means to get men or Jesus to love you. It is a means to express gratitude-filled love for Jesus and to glorify the gospel. So let's look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, just five verses. Paul says this, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overwhelming in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So let's take a look at this first verse. I will continue to say it, and I continue to say it because I want to be reminded of it myself, that we have much to be thankful for. But it's not even that we have much to be thankful for. We have someone to actually be thankful to. Sometimes we stop short and we appreciate the gifts and we don't actually appreciate the gift giver. Earlier, Paul had written that we reap what we sow. Speaking about generosity and service and so many other things. But now he reminds the Corinthians that whatever seed they actually have been given to sow has actually in itself been supplied by someone. See, God not only provides our needs, right? He provides bread to eat, the things that we need to survive, if you will. He also provides us seeds to meet the needs of others. The one who supplies intends to multiply what he supplies. That's what it says. He will supply what you need, and he's going to multiply what he supplies so that you can have a harvest of righteousness, and that's not just for you. But we know that seed is only multiplied if it's sown. So you've been given seed, and the question is, what have you done with it? So, okay, well, I'm going to sow this seed, and I'm going to spread it out and produce a harvest. Fantastic. Now that you have a harvest, what are you doing with it? Because you first have to sow the seed, and then you actually have to distribute what is sown. This taught, or I should say, warned about in a parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said this, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So he had a lot of seed and he sowed a tremendously bountiful harvest. And he thought to himself, not he counseled with others, 
What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Translated, I have so much. I need a storage facility, right? (laughs) And since the Romans hadn't invented them yet, he thought he'd build his own. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I'll store all of my grain and my goods. This could be spoken in 2019. And I will say to my soul, well, that's an interesting statement. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Retire. Drink my ties. Kick back. Whatever. And God said to him, Fool! God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There is so much to learn from this parable. But let's take a couple of them. First of all, I want to assure you that there is nothing sinful about being a rich man. Let's start there. Jesus never condemns the man for being rich, for being wealthy, for being able to produce. God is the one who has given what he has sown and has produced or harvested what he sown. I mean, that, that's from God. So that's not condemned. The issue is not how much money you make, how much you harvest or produce, the number of resources you have. The question is, what do you do with it? How do you spend it? There are going to be people who are wealthier than others, who have much more than others. That is the way of the Lord and according to His will. The question is not how much you have. The question is, what do you do with it? The second thing we learn is, when this rich man decided to build bigger barns to himself, I noted who he spoke to. His own soul. That was the conversation he had. Make no mistake about it, our attitudes towards money and possessions, our generosity or our lack thereof, is not merely an economic or pragmatic issue. It is without doubt a spiritual one. It is a spiritual issue. The third thing we see is that the man and his plan were deemed foolish because He died before he could enjoy anything and everything he had stored. He had worked so hard, and he even worked hard to store everything that he had worked so hard to build or grow. He had given it seemingly, the implication is, to really no one but himself. Essentially, he had wasted his life. And the moments before he died... No one would look at the guy and say, you wasted your life. They go, wow, what a successful, fruitful dude. But he had wasted his life laying up treasure for himself. Laying up treasure for a time that never came. It's amazing how often, and maybe you don't, 
but people think about retirement. When I retire, and how much they, they think about the tomorrow and plan for the tomorrow, which may never come. Not realizing that they've wasted the today. They've wasted maybe the opportunity right in front of them. They've wasted what God had given them already to do something with. Jesus makes it really clear. He was a rich guy, but he also was not rich. He was not rich toward God. What an interesting statement. Would, would we not fear being labeled that? Oh yeah, a guy is super successful. But he was not rich toward God. Being rich in God, whatever it must mean, it has to begin with being grateful to God for the undeserved goodness in your life. Whatever that goodness is. A lack of gratitude for all that God has provided, it reveals a real blindness or pride because you either don't see it, you don't think it's good enough, or you believe you deserved it. You earned it through hard work when everyone else was lazy. Genuine gratitude, I believe, generates a deep appreciation and an even deeper humility, realizing that you have much more than you deserve, even if you have much less than someone else. Grateful for God's generosity toward you changes your loves. Your loves begin to be prioritized because instead of, of um, loving, if you will, building and growing, you actually begin to end up loving being generous. Now, the grateful, those who are genuinely grateful, you know, they become just less concerned. This isn't about being responsible. This isn't about making sure that you have some level of security and provision for your family. You become less concerned with what this guy was most concerned about, which was laying up treasures on earth and more concerned with being rich toward God. You become less concerned with laying up treasure and actually almost a little afraid of laying up treasure on earth. Why? Well, Jesus warned against it all the time. Paul said something that was really quite scary. He says, love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. We know that, but I would argue that many of us believe if I had a little bit more, my problems would be solved. But the love of money, not money itself, the love of money, like this rich man had, is a root of all kinds of evils through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I was talking to Liz about this phrase. You know what this phrase actually refers to? That. Pierced themselves with many pangs, like a spit all the way through. This is what they've done to themselves. This is the description that they have. So our attitude towards money and, and stuff, like you begin to love it. This is what you're doing to yourself. In many ways you say, well, you either bring home the bacon to give it away or you become the bacon, right? It's impossible to lay up treasures on earth and lay hold of riches. 
of Christ. It's impossible to store up a harvest in barns through greediness and increase a harvest of righteousness through generosity. What we are given is given to be given. What we are given is given to be given. We will all enter heaven poor. You realize that? The Bible says we came here naked, we're leaving naked. No pocketbooks, no fanny packs. But I will assure you this, as Martin Luther says, you may and will assuredly enter heaven broke, but not necessarily empty-handed. That's why I love what Martin Luther said. I've had many things in my hands that I lost, but the things that I placed in the hands of God I still possess and will possess again. What we have been given is not primarily for us, is what Paul is trying to say. He who supplied is going to multiply it, implying you're to give it away. As we move into verse 11 to 12, we learn not only that gratitude gives birth to generosity, but that our generosity in turn gives birth to more gratitude. He says, you're going to be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. There it is again. God's going to enrich you to be generous. That's the point. Which through us, as they're talking about, they're going to be delivering this to these Jerusalem saints. It's going to produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, so it's doing that, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Paul states quite plainly to what amounts to very wealthy Corinthians that God made them rich, He makes them rich, He will make them rich in the future solely or primarily to give them the opportunity to be generous with others. That's the point. I think the more we remember that we are citizens of heaven, that we are journeying through this place, and that our home is actually in a better country, we will actually view all of our stuff and riches like that. That it's all just temporary and we're managers. I don't think as God blesses us, most of us, and maybe I'm just talking about my own sinful self, but I think it's not very often that we view God's increase, right, His enrichment of us as an opportunity. Often, I think, a windfall of time, right? Uh, a windfall of treasure. A windfall, you know, you get you money. I think many times I have a lot of time, a lot of extra money I didn't expect. I think, oh, how am I going to spend this? What am I going to do? Oh, I know what I could get for myself. I know what I could do for myself. And while not completely evil, our minds do run wild, usually when we are enriched with, what can I do for me? As a first thought, at least. We know that God promises to provide our needs. He even desires to give us more than we need. But I will assure you, He doesn't shower us with extra gifts in order for us to just satisfy ourselves. We are merely channels for the grace of God. We are funnels, right? Some of us bigger funnels than others. And God's like, all right, hold the funnel. And he just pours it through us. 
and it goes on to other people. I want you to consider for a second how God's grace has enriched you because our minds often just think about money, resources, bottom lines. And for some of you, that is the case. Perhaps God has enriched you with money. Perhaps he has enriched you with a tremendous amount of time. Perhaps he has made you rich in health, in well-being, that you are, man, you, you still think like a tack. Or you're young and you're, you're oh, I'm, I'm still strong. I can still do a lot of stuff. That's a richness towards you because things will change. Perhaps you have been rich with a solid family. A great marriage. Good friends. Perhaps you have been made rich with, a, with an excellent talent. A good job. Some skill that, that you know, is, is a difficult and rare thing. Who knows? I'd ask you, though, as you survey, like, well, well how has God graced me right now? Because we haven't all been graced. There's a diversity of graces, but there's a lot. It says, in every way, well, there's lots of ways God has been gracious. But have you ever seriously considered how God wants you to invest the riches of your money or time or resources? Using a word like that, how am I going to invest this as opposed to just sit on it and store it? Have you considered how to share the riches of your home to utilize the riches of your wisdom to leverage the riches of your job for the purposes of God? I can't tell you how to do that, but I think it's fair for all of us to ask that question. No one can tell anyone where God has given you the opportunity to be generous with however He has blessed you. Only that God is generous in giving people wealth in every sense of the term so that they might be generous to others. That's the point. What we do with our abundance does become kind of a litmus test about our relationship with God and as does the depth of our gratitude because gratitude for God is really where generosity starts. And we see, as Paul writes, that gratitude for God is where generosity is supposed to end, too. In the case of the Corinthians, Paul says the collection for the saints is going to supply genuine needs. It's going to meet a real need. They're really hungry. They really need help. But he says it's going to overflow. Like it's a much bigger word. That's going to supply this need, but it's going to overflow with thanksgiving to God. The purpose of this collection and the purpose of all generosity that Paul gives here is twofold. It's part material, like, yeah, meet needs, that's important, but it's also spiritual. Their gift is not just a service to the poor, it's not just a service to someone in need, it is a service directly to God. And while it feels good, and it looks good to give generously. Jesus warned us about the publicity of our generosity. It feels good to give, right? I know when I give my children gifts at Christmas, it's like, oh man, it just feels good. Like, yeah, Dad got that for you. That's right, he did. And it feels good to, to do that, you know, in other places. 
We must want people to know. That's from me. We don't say that, but it does feel good. It looks good. But Jesus told us in Matthew 6 something that's really interesting. Beware of practicing your righteousness, which Paul has called generosity, a harvest of righteousness. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And I would argue, especially during this time of year, certainly on an individual level, but churches should be careful of this. There's a lot of publicity going out about churches and the things they're doing, and I'm glad that they're doing them. But I always wonder where the attention is actually terminating on. It says, beware, practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Make no Twitter post. Don't put some sign on your website. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, you have received, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, this is instructions directly from Jesus. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. So that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees you in secret rewards you. So let's just make it really simple. When you give secretly, we say, yeah, we should give generously. We've been given generously. We should give generously. When you give, give secretly because guess what? More than likely when they don't know who has given it, God will get the credit. On the simplest thing, who did this? This happened to my wife and I the other day. We got blessed with something and my wife, because she loves to thank people, wanted to thank whoever it was and I said, this is what I'm talking about. It's better that we don't know because guess who we can clearly thank? The Lord. Don't you want that for other people? Like, that's what, if you don't want that, there's a problem. We should want that. So we go, oh, here we go. When you want to give to somebody, give them on a card. You know what you write in the card? Love Jesus. That's it. No return address. See what it does. Last verses, verses 13 and 14. Paul teaches us that generosity is never a means to get men or Jesus to love you. It's a means to express gratitude-filled love for Jesus and to actually glorify the gospel. Paul says, by their approval, their service, they're going to glorify God. Why are they going to glorify God? Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution from all, for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Paul says that their generosity, well, that the Jerusalem saints are going to view their generosity as coming from their confession of the gospel. That that's the root of it. That they're doing this because they believe. They do this because they know of what Jesus has done, not because it's been commanded or they've been compelled to. One's confession of belief in the gospel must manifest, manifest itself in beyond words. The confession from obedience in our daily lives reveals way more 
about what we truly believe than the creedal confessions of our mouths. I think they're both important, but you can see very much what someone truly believes. Genuine faith in the gospel of grace gives birth to a life of works empowered by that same grace. Somewhat controversially, but not really, James tells us that, look, if you've got faith by itself, it, it's really pretty dead if it doesn't manifest itself in any way. So their giving is an act, an expression of their confession. The confession came first, and it moved them to give. Paul expects the Jerusalem Christians are going to glorify God because the Corinthians' service, their generosity reveals their belief in the gospel in so many ways. If our generosity is going to glorify God, it first and foremost has got to be motivated by the gospel, not by trying to get people's approval or not by getting God's approval, by the fact that we have God's approval in Christ. So go, I am so grateful that I am loved, though I am such a messed up sinner, that he knew that when he went to the cross. I want to give back to him. That's a response. That's how you glorify God. But more than that, your giving should magnify the gospel. And how we do that, I think, dictates whether it does or not. So how do you do this? So I'll just give you really quickly a couple ways. If you want to give, in such a way that glorifies the gospel, first and foremost, and I've already said this and I'll keep hammering, give confessionally. In other words, give in response to the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, if you don't understand what Christ has done for you, His forgiveness, His love, His sacrifice, don't give! Because you're given with wrong motivations. You're either given to impress people, you're given to you know, earn your salvation. I don't know what reason you'd give. It should always be a response to the fact that you have been given everything, including life. We give because Jesus gave. We don't give because it was deserved. or We aren't given Jesus because it was deserved or earned. The gospel is preached when we give because we are loved and we want to share that love. So give confessionally. Secondly, give intentionally. What I mean by that. Well, there's nothing wrong with spontaneous giving. That's great. But Scripture suggests that as we've gone through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we should be a little more intentional about our giving. How does that even talk about the gospel? You realize that before the foundation of the world, God made a plan. He planned for redemption. He planned for the cross. Jesus, you could say, planned to give His life. It wasn't just a, hey, I got an idea. It was quite intentional. And therefore, giving for us should not be an afterthought. should never be from our leftovers. Because the gospel is preached when we intentionally plan to give generously. And when generosity is a part of our life as a beginning when life tempts us to be otherwise, we will stay consistent. Which is the third one, give faithfully. Paul talked about this. Remember the Corinthians? You started a year ago with good intentions. I'm so glad Jesus loved us with more than just good intentions. We need to commit to generous giving and fulfill what we commit to give. Jesus faithfully kept his promises when no one else did. No one else did. 
And he was faithful. He was faithful. It wasn't easy, but he was faithful. The gospel is not preached with good intentions or GoFundMe as much as it is with regular, faithful, ongoing, long obedience in the same direction, generosity. Much more. GoFundMe's are impressive, and then they're gone. Faithful giving of your time, talent, and treasure. Faithful love, faithful forgiveness, faithful meeting the needs of those around you. Long time, that preaches the gospel. A couple more. Giving sacrificially, which we've talked about. Our giving should be in accordance with certainly how much we have been given, how much God has prospered us according to our ability. But we are called to give generously, even sacrificially, not to the point of personal affliction, but like Jesus, it should cost us. So I would argue that even if you don't give up your lives, the gospel is preached when you give generously and give up your lifestyle. It's preached. What Mike talked about last week, give cheerfully. Our giving should spring from a cheerful heart which God loves. God is not interested in your money, but he is certainly interested in your heart. Our sacrifices do not mean as much to him as our repentance. We do all things, including our giving, without grumbling, without reluctance, and hopefully with cheer. But I will assure you, being cheerful doesn't mean it's not painful. Right? They do go together at times. How do we know this? Well, the gospel is preached just like Jesus, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? Endured the cross. That's generous. That generosity actually include enduring the cross and giving to us. Last couple I've already mentioned. Give secretly. That goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. God's going to get the thanks. But here's the one that maybe you haven't considered as our last one. Give differently. In this case of the Jerusalem saints and the Corinthians, the Corinthians were called to give cross-culturally. What do I mean by that? Well, most of the saints in Jerusalem would have been Jewish. And most of the saints in Corinth would have been Gentiles. And what that tells us is that part of the impressiveness and the glory that's coming from this collection is that they're willing to give generously to those who were formerly strangers and enemies. And they are in the process of doing this, declaring the message of reconciliation, which is what the gospel says. So when I say give differently, I would say this. It's easy to give to your kids. It's easy to give to your friends. It's easy to give to those who are easy to give to. What about those that's not? Those who are not as easy to love. Those who are different than you in so many ways. Those who could never even thank you or reciprocate in any way. I think genuine gospel giving has a lot to do with giving to people different than you. Blessing them as a way to preach a message of reconciliation that God has come to save sinners like you and me in all colors, shapes, and sizes. Giving differently. 
Well, Paul ends his, this text with thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's just a praise at the end. Ah, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This indescribable gift. And it can refer to a number of things that he's talked about in these two chapters. It could be the gift of salvation, the gift of Jesus himself, the gift of God's grace, the gift of provision, the gift of abundance, the gift of all these things, but more than likely refers to the truth found where we first started. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. More than likely, that's what he's referring to. That the Savior of the world would enter into human existence and die on a cross for our sins. And the question is, how do you thank God for that? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you express... Um, thanksgiving for such an inexpressible gift that the God of the universe shed his blood other than just thanks Jesus it seems kind of like you know like giving the savior of the world a Christmas card or some nice socks to go with his sandals like hey, here you go he's like great died for your sins that's cool how can we thank Jesus well, he tells us in the most tangible way. The first verses we read. If you want to thank Jesus, if you truly want to express thanksgiving to Jesus, you'll be generous to others. He tells about the end of the world and what's going to happen when he separates those who believe and those who do not. It's a pretty scary passage. But he says, before him all are gathered the nations and he separate people one from another as sheep separates the sheep from the goats. And he placed the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Right? A lot of planning there. And he says this, for I was hungry. Here's the reason why. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous are going to be like, oh, we didn't even know we did this. Like, when, when, did, when, did we, when did we do this? This is the righteous. You realize the righteous mentality here. They weren't thinking like, ha, 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 that's Jesus, I see him. They just assumed that whoever was an image bearer of the Lord was worthy to be blessed. And he says, Lord, when, when do we see you hungry in all these things? When do we see you stranger? When did, when did we see you? When did we see you doing this? We were doing all these things. And he says, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. You want to thank Jesus? There you go. Go bless those who are in need. Go bless the least of these. And I, I don't know what that looks like for you or for me. And probably looks different for us all. But we should just at least ask, who are the least of these around us? Perhaps you will be the one to give your voice to those who are unborn and can't speak for themselves. Perhaps it's offering your help to those who are unclean. Perhaps it is lending your strength to those who are just unable. 
Perhaps it's opening your home to those who are often unwanted, especially during the holidays. Whoever it is or whoever it is, I assure you, Scriptures teach, in as much as you give to the least of these, you are giving thanks directly to Christ who gave himself for you. And that's a pretty awesome thing. May we become a generous church, not because we want people to go, wow, what a generous church, but because we want people to go, wow, what a generous God they serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. It is undeserved, it is unearned, and it is in many ways so inexpressible. There's no way we could ever give back to you the depth and breadth and width of the love you have given to us. But Lord, you have given us a means by which we can glorify you by giving to others and loving others how you've loved us. Would you open our eyes to see, Lord, all that you have supplied us and show us ways that you want to multiply that and give us the opportunity, Lord, to meet the needs that are right in front of us. Help us to see the least of these among us, especially during this season, to love people, to love them confessionally and love them secretly, that, Father, thanksgiving might go up to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.